0: Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host,
1: Kerry Shale.
0: But on the Bob phone, he's our guest, singer, songwriter, John Doe.
1: As I went out one morning to breathe the air around Tom Payne, I spied the fairest damsel that ever did walk in chains. I offered her my hand. She took me by the arm. I knew that very instant she meant to do me harm.
0: Ah, fabulous. One of our favorite songs, I think. Uh, Why did you choose that, John?
1: Oh, that's a long story. I chose it because that was the first Bob Dylan record, uh, John Wesley Harding, that I felt was mine, that I could sort of discover on my own. My brother, older brother, had uh, Blonde on Blonde and Highway 61 and Another Side Of and all that stuff. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's that's yours. And then and then there was that hiatus. And then this came out. And I was already uh, listening to the band, and this was like, oh, fuck, this is mine. So I was connected to it pretty uh, you know, early on. I don't know how old it was, 18 or 19, maybe. And um, then I got invited to look at the Dillon archives four years ago, I think, because they wanted to have some writers and people that could put a thousand words together to look at uh, different records and you know, get their take on it. And uh, I was honored and excited to go see some of the stuff. And they, they did a bit of a dog and pony show showing me, you know, uh, this is the leather jacket that was this and this was this. And But I got to look at a number of notebooks around the time of uh, John Wesley Harding and also listen to a bunch of different takes. They have all the takes of that record available. So, um, you know, some of them just sound exactly like the in the same tempo and the same arrangement and everything mm. like that as what you're uh, used to hearing on the record. All along the watchtower is like that, there's like six or eight takes of it. And then you hear the one that's, that you've listened to on the record. And it's like, oh, yeah, there it is. There, there's the one. That's a good one. But as I went out one morning, it starts out as a pretty slow three, four time, more of a ballad. And they do two takes of that. And then the third take, I think, is suddenly in 4-4 four, four time, and it's much quicker. And uh, Charlie McCoy has that groovy bass line oh, yeah. and, and uh, all that stuff. And you're thinking, good choice. This doesn't, because <laughs> the other ones kind of suck. <laughs> I mean, they're interesting, but there's like, no, this is really kind of dull, and it takes a long time to get to the you know, punchline or the, the meat of the song. And, uh, it kind of blew my mind. Uh, it kind of, uh, I was like, wow, you just flipped it. And you can't really tell who came up with there. There's there's some talking behind it and you can't really tell who came up with this idea. Nobody said, Hey, this sucks. We're going to make it four, four. But that was, that kind of opened a a door. And and then, then I started playing that song as I went out one morning Mm -hmm. in three, four time, but doing it actually faster. And and putting the you know there were there were great there were big pauses of of just musical stuff in Bob's version, that was in three four. So anyway, uh, that's why I chose it, and it is actually one of those songs that I uh, I do from time to time, and uh, and it influenced this new record that I got coming out. Yeah, that is out now, and so kind of a perfect perfect timing to be talking about. Mr Bob Dylan.
0: Yeah well I I was going to bring up John Wesley Harding anyway having listened to uh, Fables in a Foreign Land your new record um mm-hmm. because I could see that there were there is a bit of influence uh there
1: but I was yes. also interested when
0: you you said when you played it when did you play it
1: when when do I play it when have I played as I went out Yeah night? yeah oh recently usually I I do it I don't do it with the trio we tried it a few times, but haven't really, you know, we got a lot of other material that we're playing. So I've done it just as, a, you know, when I'm doing a, a solo acoustic show.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you ever get any reaction? Because, I mean, it's such a deeply weird song. Like, the whole album is so deeply weird. But uh, mm-hmm. Depart From Me This Moment, I
1: Told Her With My Voice, all that bizarre stuff. The, the and thou and biblical kind yeah. of speak. No, I mean, to be honest, people's reaction to, to shows and songs pretty limited <laughs> you know it's, it's not like ooh, that song in the middle of the set mm. really made me think this and it's like you never hear that they just go oh great show
0: <laughs> yeah <woo>. or, wow <laughs> yeah, that <yes>. was cool
1: <laughs> and you know shit like that and you're thinking did you actually listen to any of this or are you just kind sort of scrolling through your phone or what <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah because you're um, pouring no, your I, heart out, out a lot people, of people people are very attentive and but the, the one song that i did of bob's that does get reaction is uh, pressing on because that's a, you know, that's a torchy kind of song. And I, I was lucky enough to have Joe Henry ask me to do that for the, I'm not there movie. And so I've continued to do that. And, and I was lucky enough to do that for the music care when they honored Bob, uh, I don't know, three or four years it was ago, 2015 music yeah. care. God, was it that long ago? Yep. I was really fortunate enough to, to be part of that and um, that that gets a reaction from
2: people. I'm talking about pressing on John, what, what does that song say to you beyond its religious
1: context? Oh, I th- I think the the religious part of it is on the surface, that's the most important part of it. But actually, I think it's it's more about perseverance, discipline, you know, just like what the title says and yeah. and, and the the way it's delivered too is it's about continuing, regardless of your struggles and trials and tribulations.
0: I don't know if you're aware of this, because there's a lot of you uh, in concert floating around on on YouTube. And uh, I, I was on YouTube the other day looking up John Doe. You were singing, pressing on in, in front of a pretty big venue. And it just cuts to your just the end of your intro. You say, oh, this is um, a song from Bob Dylan's Born Again period. And it actually gets a laugh. Now, you're you're not trying to get a laugh, clearly, but it gets a laugh, yeah. and then you yeah. start it. I mean, you, you know that. And then by the end, you definitely have got them, and I, I love that because, as you say, that's what the mm. song's about.
1: Well, <laughs> if there's one thing that I've learned in my many years of performing, people and audiences are unreliable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like half the time the sound is bad and people were having a great time and you have to square that somehow and keep pressing on. (laughs) I think the, the whole, uh, you know, slow train and, and, uh, what, what's the other record that was saved? Saved. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a metaphor. It's a, it's an allegory. It's, you know, it's like the Bible. The Bible was never meant to be, and I, I'm not an expert, so don't, let's not start asking for verses or something like that <laughs> but the bible was meant to say hey this is you know a, a strong suggestion in a way that you might find fulfillment or satisfaction mm. this is a, a some stories on how to treat people yeah. and how to treat yourself and, and what you know what's what's going to be rewarding and what's going to be not rewarding
2: you're right there's songs about continuing there's songs about you know reassessing your surroundings improving your life yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, they're fables in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, there's, I've been discovering this guy uh, recently. I, most people haven't heard of him called John Craigie. Do you know him? Uh, anyway, he's, he's a sort of folky singer-songwriter at, at the moment, and uh, he, he does one song about uh, literal interpretations of the Bible. He says, it does say in uh, Leviticus or whatever that two men shall not lie together. But he he reads the entire thing, which says, "If two men shall lie together, they shall be stoned." And he said, "I don't see anything wrong with that." I
1: mean, <laughs> the best of both worlds, <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: so yeah, uh, literalism doesn't go well with music, really, does it? Or or fables. No. So, but uh, as far as the, uh, the new album, I, I noticed, uh, I've, I've listened to it uh, quite a few times, and I really, really um, enjoy it, and uh, I was taken, and then I started looking at your back catalog and things, and seeing all, lots of horse references, and there's, of course, there's a man and a horse on the cover of uh, Fables in a Foreign Land, and there's a, seemingly a boy and a horse on the, covers of the, Western, the cover of The Westerner, your previous album. And then there's this, I found this fabulous video of uh, your song, There's a Black Horse. Right. Which is terrific. And you say a lot of interesting things about horses and life and humans. So where do you stand with, presumably, were you always a kind of a horse guy or did you come from an urban environment with no horses?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Baltimore, which is not horse country. Uh, But I was introduced to horses by a friend. His name is Michael Blake. He wrote uh, Dances with Wolves Mm. and... Several other novels and and uh, some uh, nonfiction, and he was he was a dear friend of mine, and he said, "Hey, you know, I'm a, I found this riding stables. It's out, uh, you know, 20 miles out of L.A. Uh, you want to come?" And I think I was probably in my early 30s or something like that. And you know, I'd had the same experiences that most people had had: gone to a rental stables, and you know, the horses were burned out and pissed off and you know (laughs) get off my back you asshole (laughs) you know you don't know the first thing about you don't know the first thing about riding so why why are you punishing me and (laughs) things like that but I just really took to it and it's probably the image of what it means but then as you get deeper into it you realize how many lessons you can learn from it and I have and I still do I live in Texas now I, I brought the two horses that I owned in Northern California, I had uh, had them shipped out there. Yeah, it's it's my passion, and <laughs> I'd think about retiring now and then if I could afford it. I would and just screw around with them and and uh, you know because it's it's a long long conversation that most people that don't own horses find incredibly boring. But the short version is that they are in the now. They are. Present right now, right now, right now, right now. They operate from the right side of their brain, which is not the logical side; it's the kind of present and reactive side. So it requires you to do the same thing. And, and they have a, they also have this huge area of sensitivity where, if you believe in that sort of thing, auras and such, which I do, it's you know like fifty feet. They notice things and they they know things and uh, that that you n- never could. So getting connected to something like that is uh, deep and it's restorative and it keeps me honest and plus they're magic. They're just mm. freaking mm. magic. I mean, they're, <laughs> they, <laughs> we are predators and they're prey and they allow us to just kind of be with them and to climb on their back and <laughs> take them places that are sort of scary for them. But it's also a, a lesson in leadership and, and, you know, being a good like leader of your team or you know okay we're gonna do this together let's let's make it good
2: i love the notion that animals can access this this emotional intelligence i i have a couple of dogs and a few years ago my car caught fire on, on a job and whatever and i was and I, got, I got a lift back with this guy i was doing this play and there was a dog in the place so we had a dog trainer and he gave me a lift back and he said you know luke when you get home your dog will know what you've been through your dog will understand, you know, You and he was kind of right, you know, the, and I guess horses are the same. They, they understand trauma. They, they have emotional intelligence, which is just wonderful. Now, as you say, we can learn lessons from that, right?
1: Yes. It's also, I mean, it's nonverbal. That, that's why I usually ride by myself. Um, I ride one horse and another horse just follows along because he wants to be part of the herd. <laughs> um, I used to have a rope on him, uh, you know, on his halter. And then I realized he doesn't need that. He's just going to come along and he'll be, he'll eat and, you know, fall behind, you know, by maybe 20 yards or something like that. And I'm like, oh shit, I got to catch up. And, you know, here he comes. But it's, if you go riding with somebody else, then they're just talking all the time. And it's, and it's, all this, and it's like, I like riding with you, but can you just shut the hell up? <laughs> this is all good and, and everything, but just shut up.
0: It must be like somebody talking while while you're meditating or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, or uh, you know, my one of my great pet peeves, which I'm sure people share, is is people walking their dog while they're looking at their fucking phone. Why don't you just get a dog app on your phone? (laughs) If you're gonna go walk your dog, enjoy the walk with your motherfucking dog. (laughs) I'm sorry to be so quite right. Use so much bad language here, but no fucking problem. Go on a walk. And maybe you'll see something rather than looking yeah. at your damn phone yeah. Yeah. while you're di- – I don't know. We can, we can move on.
0: Well, spe- well let's, <laughs> look, I'll use the horse thing to segue just slightly because um, I, I looked up that you called uh, your song, There's a Black Horse. You, you referred to it at one point. You probably don't remember doing this, but you said in some interview uh, it was a very Sam Peckinpah kind of song. And right. I, I won't hold you to that, but it, that's my segue to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid that bob right. was riding a horse but i'm just only just interested uh, as to what you might have made of that film if you've seen it
1: oh yeah uh, it's a great film i think that bob's contribution to it is probably one of the best things about it you know not to blow smoke up his ass he doesn't need that but it's really it has a lot more of the mystery to it i mean i think chris christopherson is good and and uh i forget who plays um James Coburn plays Peck. Mm. James Coburn. Yeah, mm. they're good, but but it, it doesn't have the kind of I think it could have had more like Wild Bunch, not the violence, but the yeah, the, yeah the, the but craziness. You mean? Yeah.
2: It depends tension. which version you see, because I mean, I, I certainly I, I'm I'm of the view that it's Peckinpah's masterpiece, but only if I'm talking about a very specific rough cut that he made of it, which was not the version that was released. Anyway, that's that's dull. But
1: oh. But I well, think your, see, that's totally possible. I yeah. think
0: your point is in- interesting about Bob Dylan's acting because I'm never, I'm never really sure, but I know that he's doing something else. Like, those guys are good mm-hmm. professional actors, and mm-hmm. Bob is doing something else, like he always does in films. I, I, I read somewhere that somebody said, watching Bob Dylan is like watching a cat, and I thought that was a great quote <laughs> because you don't... What the hell... Because I'm, yeah. I'm a cat person, that's my uh, animal, and yes. uh, we've got two cats. And I, I just sit there watching them for hours because you don't know what the hell is going on. And it's, it's weird when, when it's acting in a film, though, because, you, you know, when you see his character in Pat Garrett, that's all I could think was, like, what mm. the hell is going on? Like, he's got one scene with Christofferson, you know, just one really good scene, where I thought there's, it's like when worlds collide. Christopherson is doing acting as we know it, and Dylan is doing acting as we don't know it. And in the middle, you've got Harry Dean Stanton and and people like that. It's all
2: all very compatible. I think. There's some some real oddball character actors in there that kind of tie it all together.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I I think that he just relies on his magnetism, and that's good, because he's not acting, he's just being. Mm. And, And that's the best acting that you can do
2: yeah well we're all actors right, aren't we? we all three of us so um, you've done tons well, yeah uh,
0: tons of uh, acting and we've uh we were talking about the other day we were talking about uh, great balls of fire yeah <laughs> we'd like to know <laughs> more about that
1: <laughs> well well it suffered from press that that had just come out about jerry lee where right or wrong he was kind of accused of killing his wife and he was the, you know, it was some Rolling Stone, big, long investigative piece, you know, where it was like Jerry Lee, the killer, you know, which was just a, that was a nickname that he got by because he would, he would call other people killer. Hey, killer, what's going on? And, and so Jim McBride wanted to do a a movie about Jerry, the director Mm -hmm. wanted to do a movie about Jerry Lee, the naive kind of dumb kid from, Fair Day. Mm. And, you know, he wanted to just capture that essence, that rock and roll kind of fun time, just it's all happening yeah. at once. And people didn't want to see that. They wanted to see the, the down and dirty, you know, ugliness of, of the killer. And so, it, you know, and, and Dennis Quaid acted his ass off. I mean, yeah. he, you know, the, the only thing that Dennis... Uh, suffered from is he tried to be jerry lee during the filming which (laughs) meant staying up very late and doing some unsavory things staying up late yeah but, but he you know he gave it his all and and uh it was really a gift to be able to be part of that working with uh winona Ryder and and dennis and and of course you know mojo nixon and i are old pals and you know we got to be a lot closer and I mean, it was a long shoot. That was back in the days when they, you know, would would shoot for two and a half, three months. And then they, then they took us all to England for this for this little moment. And we did all that stuff in England when three quarters of it is interiors. Yeah,
2: yeah. With Peter and it Cook was very clear
1: for- that, the, that the producer just wanted to go to England <laughs> and, and have fun. But we did get to, you know, uh, rehearse and, and get our... Kind of shit together at sun studios after hours and mm-hmm. you know we're there with uh roland james and um jimmy well, vaughn
2: yeah Jim, well
1: know. jimmy of course but jerry lee's drummer yeah and and i got to meet jw brown and mm-hmm. and talk to him yeah. and you know that it was a, it was a wonderful step back in time moment so that it, was in the
0: late 80s wasn't
1: it i think it came out in
0: 89
2: yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. and jerry lee was was on set wasn't he on involved Part of the time, yeah. There was a, I, I actually wrote a piece about it, like a kind of prose poem, where we all met at the Peabody Hotel, which is the antebellum hmm. hotel in the center of Memphis. Everyone gives directions in Memphis, uh, you know, go to the Peabody and yeah. turn right. That's I, the know, one with the ducks, the, the ducks up. The yeah. ducks up. Yes. In the Yeah. 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 <laughs> the roof. yeah. yeah. And we met in the lobby of that one night. It was uh, Jim McBride and Jack Barron, who was the writer and uh, second. Uh, you know, like assistant director and Jerry Lee. And I think Jerry Sheff was his wow. manager at that point. And Dennis and uh, and Jerry Lee and Carrie, his wife, and they had just had a baby. And, but Jerry Lee had a copy of the script with just a big X across one page <laughs> and another, like in Sharpie, you know, never happened. And, you know, and mm-hmm. he's threatening to to stop production like the day before we were going to start. And then he has a martini, and then he has another martini, and then he's t- suddenly it's a, it's a little bit happier, and everything's going to be okay. And then he's t- <laughs> rolling up paper napkin and trying to pitch it into Jim McBride's drink, and, and he's just acting like a kid. But as we pulled up, or as we first came in, Jerry introduced me to to Jerry Lee and said, "This is this is John Doe. He's going to play J W Brown." And he kind of steps back like he does, <laughs> and, uh, and he goes jw brown was a fucking asshole <laughs> you might, you might make a good jw brown it's Like, did i just get called a fucking asshole i guess i did okay right great you know and then, then as the as the night wore on then uh uh jerry chef says to, to jerry lee because because we had we had played a show with jerry lee mm-hmm. where we we paid him 10 grand to open for x Wow. Um, Jesus. At the, at the Universal Amphitheater. And it was uh, this band, The Minutemen, who was this amazing, like, punk rock jazz band. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a three-piece. And then Jerry Lee and then X. So we were, we were trying to show the unity of, like, mm-hmm. good music that changes things and, and, and mm-hmm. makes people question things and, and learn stuff, whatever. And so Jerry Chef says, you know, Jerry Lee, uh, these guys here, you played with them over at uh, the Universal Amphitheater. And they do a a version of that song, Breathless. And Jerry Lee, like the whole room gets quiet. And Jerry Lee like looks at me. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck, no, more? Really? Am I going to have to suffer more abuse here? And then he goes... Y'all did that song great. I love the way you guys did that song. I saw that and I was And I was like, Oh my <laughs> god, thank you, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was thinking
2: that this week, watching the Letterman clip of you doing Breathless, thinking, I wonder what Jerry Lewis thought of this because there's a real element. Yeah. I mean, just to bring it slightly back to Dylan, there's the, it's it's what a year before Dylan went on Letterman and did his kind of punky thing with the plugs, and it's not a million miles away. I wonder if yeah. I wonder if yeah. Dylan was watching that night and thought, Yeah, maybe I'll <laughs> maybe I'll do something like that. Hey, um, I don't know.
0: do. I don't
2: know. Yeah, <laughs> but Lee liked it. That's got that. That's good. And did how did you yeah, get that into was, that? Was, was a
0: relief. W- did somebody know somebody who said, "Oh, John Doe, would be great to be the
1: bass player for this"? Or did you audition no, as I an just, actor? No, I just I auditioned. just auditioned for it. Wow. I mean, I think I think Jim. Well, Jim was Jim McBride was aware of X because he had used our version of Breathless in his remake of Breathless with uh, Richard right. Gere and, uh, okay. and all that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I had to go and audition, and, and I, you know, did like two or three of them, and they, you know, saw how Winona and I worked together, and you know, all that stuff. That was a, a good point. That was a point at which I thought, oh, maybe I can buy a house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, two or three months
0: on a, a big Hollywood film will. Uh, yeah, back it in helps. The day. It's
1: it's a lot better. Than, it's a lot better than playing rock and roll clubs, that's for sure. Better pay.
0: Did you? And presumably, you guys were well. You were disappointed by the. Um, uh, I don't know what it was like uh, financially, but uh, I know, as you say, the, the press kind of turned, seemingly turned
1: against it. Oh, you know, it. I, it's just what happens. I try to, I mean, maybe at the time I had higher hopes for it, mm. but in retrospect, it's like you just do things and the joy that you get out of it is doing it. Mm. And whatever anybody else makes of it afterward is up to them and yeah. you really can't give a shit yeah cuz it's yeah. it's just yeah it's not it, it's it's not going to make any difference yeah and and you can spoil the the joy that you've had or the satisfaction reward whatever that you've gotten out of writing it recording it you know that whole process it can spoil that and and that's mm-hmm. that's horrible
0: mm-hmm. i'm i just want to go back to the uh, music cares thing cuz that's um, i was always intrigued by Dylan's speech there and, the, mm. and all the people who played that night, and as you were one of them,
1: any other, you know, cause Springsteen was there, Jimmy Carter gave a speech. Cheryl Crow was awesome. And, uh, and so was Tom Jones and Aaron Neville. And I thought, wow, I'm <laughs> sharing the bill with these people. And, and it was daunting. One of my great memories is that there was a, a, a backstage, there was a two hallways sort of, or two walkways That went into a V, kind of a hard turn, you know, a hairpin turn, if Mm -hmm. you will. And at some point, Bruce Springsteen was standing right at the point of that, just by himself, just being Bruce Springsteen and just like looking people in the eye and saying hi. And then, you know, somebody would stop and talk to him. And then he just like, then they'd go on and he just, he was just, he stood there for, I don't know, half an hour or 15 minutes. I don't know exactly how long. But I went up and talked to him, and then I kind of said, well, I've got to go do something else. And he goes, okay, see you later. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was so, I mean, I should have expected something like that because he does talk the talk and walk the walk. I've he heard about Bruce
2: Springsteen, that he's exactly the person you want him to be. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that was the, uh, the only time I've ever met him. And it was just like, you know, some other people came in with their fucking entourage and a rack (laughs) full of designer clothes and bullshit like that. And you're thinking like, really? You think you're all that? Mm, Mm. Okay. I guess you are since you've got that, you know, kind of juice or whatever. But Mm. yeah, Mm. Sheryl Crow was, was, uh, really terrific. And, you know, of course the other heavy hitters like Neil Young. And, uh, I was laughing my ass off as Bob was reading that speech. (laughs) <laughs> and and for, and for weeks, and even nowadays, every once in a while, a friend of mine and I will say, anyway. <laughs> it's like, because it's so true. All, everything that he said there is so true. It's just like, which, you know, you could boil down to, in my interpretation is like, people talk a lot of shit, but it really doesn't matter. It depends on what you do with it. And the insight that he had for... um Songwriting, you know, if you sing or, you know, take apart a song enough times, you have a good chance of writing something that is influenced by that. If you really pay attention to the lessons you can learn from something else, you have the opportunity to move forward with it. He's, I think he's kind of downplaying his own contribution, but that's smart because then you don't think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Then yeah. then you, you know, you're a little bit more humble. But I, I I do I do want to mention that I was at this opening for the Bob Dylan Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is but- it is spectacular. I'm not a academic. I don't get into the weeds that much with with Bob Dylan because I I don't think that it's I don't really care. Mm. You know I I don't I, I've never read a biography of his because I think that trying to pull that all apart can be you can kind of miss the. The best part of things, and I, I don't fault anybody for it. It's just not my thing, but the center is great. Each of the exhibits has its own way of presenting things. One thing is, the first one is sort of immersive, and it's all these different films and and pictures. You know, you're like have gone inside of a a, a tunnel of, of Bob, and then the next one is is more ephemera and, you know, set up like a, a proper museum. But there's all these different eras and, and things like that from the beginning of his career to now. And then the top floor is all about inspiration. And um, oh, I forget the name of the photographer, famous photographer that did all the Blonde on Blonde. You guys may know this. Oh, Blonde on Blonde. Jerry... Schatzberg. Schatzberg, yes. Schatzberg, yes. Yeah. So the, the top floor... Has a, has a big mural of something that one of the women from the Shakers did back in the 1800s. Because I guess, you know, Bob is, all, is, is very much into the Shakers and, and that sort of uh, inspiration from who knows where, from the great beyond, uh, which I agree with. I don't think you can put your finger on where inspiration comes from. Yeah, the, the top floor is, is also a different take on something that is connected to him with photography and then other, you know, items and stuff. But it's great. It's great. And the fact that it's in Tulsa, Tulsa is a town that's really coming to grips with their past
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: also has a pretty bright future, I think.
2: Well, their tourist industry is about to get a whole lot better, I think.
1: (laughs) Well, I hope so. Uh, I hope it doesn't mess it up. I mean, Tulsa is kind of like what Austin was 15 or 20 years ago, which was a bit nicer than what it is now although austin is still very livable i I live there now but tulsa's cool you know i I think that anyone who's into bob dylan will find many many things to uh to see in that center and there's also uh speaking of tulsa there's also uh leon russell's church church studio has been renovated and people can tour that as well Hmm. and the woody guthrie center of course yeah yeah there's a lot
0: were you there because um you you've been interested in the center for the, some time, or were you there to perform, or just check it out, or did you make a special was, trip to be there?
1: Yeah, I just got invited, and you know it's it's a quick flight, and I'm a supporter. Hmm. I'm a supporter of the of the center. You know they were kind enough to invite me there to to write something about John Wesley Harding, and I did, and I, I think there, it's available somewhere, and and they were doing that with with a few other writers and and performers and people that are you know somehow associated with Bob. And,
0: and were you um, there for the uh, Patty Smith concert?
1: No, I had to leave. Um. I, I, I had a show of my own back in Austin the the day after that. But I did see Mavis Staples and Mavis oh. Staples just tore the place apart.
0: Oh. We're both as, seeing as her she in, in
1: about a month actually. Yeah,
0: we've got we've had tickets for what 2, two years? years because yeah. it's been postponed oh, twice. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> she has a great band. She is a powerhouse. You just think like how does this little woman just know. do that? And then you go, oh, right, she's Mavis Staples. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Well, actually, I did,
0: I did see her about 20 years ago. There was a sort of a blues soul kind of uh, thing out in the country at, at some uh, country pile. And uh, uh-huh. uh, it, it was being one line. Well, one night was headlined by Van Morrison. <laughs> one night was headlined by Steve Earl, and uh, John Lee Hooker was supposed to be there, but he, he got ill. He was like, he never performed again. But, but I, I went to the, uh, well, I went to the whole thing, and she was supporting, believe it or not, Steve Earl as a weird sort of um, combination. But And the yeah. rain was, it was a deluge. It was so fierce, and I was... Because I'm, I'm small, I, I always get to any gig early, and I'm down front. I'm, so I was right down front. And, yeah. and the rain was pouring off the thing that was covering the stage, basically onto me and my wife. We were just like, <laughs> we were just oh. soaked. But I, I never forgot Mavis, Mavis Staples or Steve Earle, who was also terrific. But Mavis Staples was, she was looking out sort of like, I don't really understand this. But, <laughs> you know, because it was, it was sort of like a, more of a blues gig thing. Mm, mm, but she, mm. I'll never forget, she was charismatic. She was like a horse in, that, in the
1: way that she had this aura, right? She was in yes, the moment. Yeah. She was just fabulous. Yes. She will take you there. Yeah. I'll take you there, and Ooh. she did take everybody there. <laughs> it was fantastic <laughs> yeah we're, we're seeing her in a, in a church
2: aren't we union chapel so yeah. that's gonna that's gonna help i
1: think oh yeah i i, I got to play there with nick Lowe. It's oh a wow oh yeah that's wonderful yeah. 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 about eight years ago something like that yeah Oh, that's interesting, oh that'll be so good mm.
0: yeah i know talk about
2: anticipation i know yeah two-year build-up what about what about i'm not there because we need to talk a bit more about about the fact that you, you didn't just do pressing on you did i dreamed i saw st augustine on that
1: soundtrack, was that by invitation or did you get to choose? Joe Henry asked me to to do "Pressing On," mm-hmm. which I I knew but wasn't that familiar with. And then he put on the gospel choir, or it was I think it was three or four women uh, afterward. But uh, I got to use his his players, which is Jay Bellarose and and uh, I think Paul Bryan, bass player, and uh, maybe Greg Leese. Anyway, it was a, it was just <laughs> a great great band and that's one of those songs that if you don't go for it, it's not going to work. And I, I was lucky enough to, to get there and, and go for it mm-hmm. and, and just let it loose. And then St. Augustine, I, I just done that uh, in the, in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I said, Hey, while we're here, you know, we've got that done. Yeah. We did three or four takes and, and that was also live. So why not? We're here. Yeah. Let's make a day of it. I it's a wonderful like film. It's,
2: I th- I it's a wonderful soundtrack and a really, really good film, I think. I think it really,
1: really is. Yes, I thought so well. too. And and here's another, you know, I don't mean to bag on the press, but the, the reviews were so odd. It was oh, like, yeah. Yeah. I don't understand this. This is a weird <laughs> yeah. movie. And it's yeah. like, what do you want? You want another, like, Sandra Bullock rom-com? What the <laughs> fuck? You're a, you're a film critic. I would think you would embrace something that's a little bit, like outside and a little bit challenging i thought in a way
0: that 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 was right though i thought those people don't understand bob dylan and they don't understand why this film is so brilliant because it's about bob dylan i mean it's it's so that's why it's so weird and you don't Mm -hmm. understand it so i thought yes they should have had people who understood bob dylan They'll come around to it. it. They'll come around to it.
2: You know, I, I was, and I said that films aged well. And as I was saying, I was thinking, I've got to stop saying this because art doesn't change. We do, you know, and we, and eventually, popular opinion will come around to realize that I'm not there is a really, really
1: good film. It just has to wait, yeah, well, doesn't it? I, I agree. I, I totally agree. And I thought it was it did a disservice to Todd Haynes
2: because
1: because mm. he took, you know, he took the essence of a lot of. Material and yeah. put the essence out there, not you know, you know, back when I was a child. And yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. All, you
0: know, most biopics
2: are just well, you know, the, just the, the linear thing. I mean, the other one I always think of, and we've we've mentioned this before, but but Love and Mercy, the um, the Brian Wilson film oh. with you know Paul Dano and John Cusack. Again, it doesn't right. go for a linear story. It goes for the heart of, of the matter and it hits hits the core of Brian Wilson somehow. And it's really powerful and moving, I think. And in a perfect world, to me, all biopics would be like love and mercy and I'm not there. Just junk out the chronology and go for something more interesting, you know?
1: Yeah. I was I was disappointed that I I didn't I was saddened by the fact that I didn't realize that Christian Bale was gonna use the the kind of Bob Dylan lilt. Mm -hmm. in his uh delivery as as i was you know voicing his uh singing i i would have amped that up a little bit but uh what the hell
0: that's That's did you did you know that that christian bale was going to be lip-syncing to your
1: singing when you were doing it you didn't know at all no i just gave it my all and thought okay that's the best i can do
0: did they get in touch and say, oh, yeah, yeah did, we, did anyone tell you that <laughs> your voice not. is going to be coming out of his mouth? So did, you, no. did, did that happen at, like, I mean, the screening? I found out. Did, I found out. What's that? Do, sometimes I've been in films where, uh, where you get cut out of the film and nobody tells you. Um, and, oh, yeah. And uh, to actually have your voice coming out of Christian Bale's mouth.
1: It well, was totally weird. <laughs> it was so weird and and i they did tell you know they 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 did tell everybody i I assume you know later on that this is what's gonna this is where this is going to be put so i was thrilled i mean like shit he's a he's a big deal but yeah it was totally bizarre
0: (laughs) well presumably he I, i kind of get the feeling he would have tried to do it himself but Maybe somebody said, "Probably not as good as you." <laughs> know. Don't tell
2: Christian. Well,
1: going back to the great balls of fire, uh, Dennis Quaid tried to said, "I I want to sing. I, I want to sing live, or I I want to do the mm. soundtrack." Yeah. And they tried, and and Dennis has a good voice, mm. but it's it's pretty gruff. It's it's mm. got a lot of it's got a good bit of gravel in it, and mm. it's, and they just tried it, and they thought, no, that's not going to work. Because then they got T Bone Burnett and, and Jerry Lee did it himself. And, yeah, you know, and the like great recordings.
2: Him. I mean, that recording of that Lucky Old Son to me is is, is one of oh my, my God. favorites. That, that oh. 88 recording, whatever it is. Yes. But and he and Dennis yeah. quite a duet on Crazy Arms on the CD. I remember
0: because I used to I used to have it somewhere. Yeah. And that was
2: that was interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, of other people other than Bob Dylan, I read an interview with you recently where somebody said uh, this was just last year, the LA Times said, "What have you been listening to?" And uh, and it was really. Great cause you said i you said lightning hopkins the of among the various ones you said junior Wells, and you said Bill Evans, which I thought was really interesting, and you seemed mm. a little apologetic or something, but i I think he's wonderful,
1: <laughs> you know, maybe you well, don't, don't think know. you should be
0: heard you know seen to be listening to bill Evans uh i
1: don't care. Yeah, we all need. A, we
0: all need. A, I've been listening to lots of Bill Evans and and all sorts of that's you know and Chet Baker and those guys uh, around dinner time because you know especially during the pandemic, Christ.
1: Yeah. Well, it, listening to jazz makes you smarter. There's there scientific <laughs> studies that, that, that show that listening to jazz makes you a smarter, better person. So. I, I want. I strive for
2: that. Jazz and horses, right? Yes,
1: exactly. That's my that's my Venn diagram. That is.
0: That's your that's your title for your next album, man. I want to credit. Jazz and horses. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, I'll, done. Deal. Done.
0: What about other um, other people who've influenced you? Uh, because I've read that you've name checked Joni Mitchell, Johnny Cash. I mean, we're we're big fans of all yeah. these. Have you ever met Joni, for instance, or come in contact with
1: oh, her? Oh, I did. I did a, a long, long time ago huh. at some sort of Grammy party, and and it, I was just shell shocked. I think I think I met her and Reuben Blades like within minutes of each other, and I uh, wow, well, I just was tongue-tied. And I <laughs> what What do you say? You <sighs> know, what, I think that was in the early or mid '80s, probably. Influences, you know, for this most recent record. Mm. I didn't do some academic dive into folk music. I mean, I, it's, I listened to it when I was a kid, because that's what happened in the 60s. Children were given folk songs, you know, little 10-inch records that had Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie and people like that, Cisco Houston. And, um, of course, all the subject matter in that is just, <laughs> what are you thinking? it's about murder. It's about drinking too. It's, you know, it's about cheating on your spouse. It's about, you know, being a socialist. And so Mm -hmm. anyway, I did listen to the Mississippi Sheiks. Mm Uh, I did listen to some Doc Boggs and, and, you know, like, like more as a refresher, uh, some Barbara Dane, but just sort of to listen to guitar tones and, and just sort of, you know, Oh yeah, I can do that. And, But we were really fortunate to in in making this record that it was during the pandemic, and Kevin Smith, the bass player, usually plays with Willie Nelson, so they weren't touring. X wasn't touring. Conrad Chacroon, the drummer, played with uh, Patty Griffin at the time, so they weren't touring. So we just got together on Kevin's back porch, and he plays upright bass, and Conrad can muffle his drums enough, so we just sang and played like into the air and had you know, a year and a half to to work on a sound and to work on the songs and to just kind of get it all together. And it was, uh, I mean, I suppose every record, every piece of creativity is unique. This seemed to have a, another layer of focus. Nobody's doing anything. So let's just do this for something to do. You
0: know, it's very catchy. I mean, I was kind of surprised because the title, Fables in a Foreign Land, I thought, well, mm, it sounds kind of serious. I'm not quite sure. And and then getting into it, it's, it's really very catchy. I mean, it's it's very tuneful and there's some earworms in there and, uh, you know, some, oh good. some great, I mean, I, re- I really, I love the number of the tracks, but I really like uh, El Romanzo. That's the earworm for me (laughs) in fact i can't get it out of my head it's really
1: oh i'm sorry i I, I appreciate it and apologize at the same time
0: but it is uh, Um, but i've also been watching the video who is the guy in the video
1: the The old mexican guy i mean yeah the the younger the younger man is gilbert trejo who directed it and i worked with gilbert uh, a while ago on a project that never never came through and then he did a video for X, and uh, so I asked him to do this. That is his uncle or uncle-in-law. It's Jimmy, Uncle Jimmy. It was a you know easy collaboration because I just said, well, there's this, and it's about you know people who are liars, and and it's about someone who's pretending to be something that they're not. And um, Gilbert just took it and ran with it, and then filmed us, and we kind of cut them all together, or he did. It is about. Uh, the apprentice taking the place of the mentor and, and both of them being pretending, pretending to be something they're not mm. saying that they can, they can do these things. And I was also really fortunate to have Luis Perez from Los Lobos, who's an old, old friend, meaning we're of the same age. <laughs> and we've been friends a long time. He's not that old, <laughs> uh, to write the verses in Spanish. Cause the title mm. or uh, the character El Romanzo came mm-hmm. to me in a, in a dream. And that's pretty much all I remember of the dream It's just this name. And then I started working on the character, and then I thought it might, since it's sort of Spanglish, have Louis do a verse in Spanish. And he added a whole other element or a whole other dimension to the character. It, it Basically, he's, he's saying in the, in the verse, my words are the truth, and I can be your best friend. And nobody knew how or why he left, only that he was a liar. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he, he sort of imagines himself as a lady killer you know kind of but he's not and 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 the worst thing is is that he gives himself his own nickname and you know that we can't you can't do that you have to do something, uh, you know, exceptional or something really stupid in order to get a nickname. And yeah. then you become, he's hes so full of himself that he gives himself his own nickname.
0: Well, it really worked, I have to say, because I thought, is that Elmer, you know, did you write the song about <laughs> that guy? Is that the guy? Because he seemed yeah, like he, he could have been the guy. Yeah,
1: totally. But I, I'll i give Bob Dylan some credit in, in like you were saying that it's a, a weird world that he asks you to enter for John Wesley Harding. And that record had some influence, serious influence on this record, because it is set in the 1890s. It is set in this world and that you're just inviting someone into. And my greatest hope is that somebody walks in there, you know, looks around, has some experience, sees the, you know, the death caps and the destroying angels and and all these sorts of... uh, Weird things, sleeps on the ground, feels that experience and then gets to go home and be grateful that they don't, <laughs> that they don't have to sleep on the ground. I, I also think that John Wesley Harding was recorded in a similar way because having listened to those outtakes, they're all just standing on the ground and doing their thing because you can't punch in. I mean, the way we recorded, I don't know how they did, but the way we recorded, we did it the same way as we were on the back porch. There were just a bunch of mics around. We didn't wear headphones. We just listened to what each other was playing. So you didn't have the option of overdubbing. Mm -hmm. If you sang a bad note, you can't use it. Well, we did cut between takes. We could do that. Mm -hmm. But it would be like the entire band because it was so much bleed, so much leakage. And I, I get the feeling that that's the way John Wesley Harding was done.
2: Yeah, it's funny, you know, even though we we have some outtakes from John Wesley Harding and Kerry and I have uh, talked to Charlie McCoy about it on this podcast, the mystery still abounds, you know. It's still the most mysterious record that anyone can think of, you know. Nothing is is really revealed,
0: you know, but nothing is certain in that record. I mean, we talked to Charlie uh, McCoy about uh, particularly we got... He didn't have any memory of John Wesley Harding at all. He remembered he said it was an, Skyline he, a bit. He just said it
2: was another day, you know. You know, we did blonde and blonde. John Wesley Harding, you know, hi, how he, you doing?
0: He'd come up to Bob and say, um, <laughs> What about this for a baseline? And Dillow would say, Yeah, okay. And that would be. It was another day in the studio for a musical. It was the
2: real you know, genius, of, like Charlie McCoy. It was like John Ford when Peter Bogdanovich asked John Ford, "How did you shoot the Searchers?" and he just went, "With a camera." <laughs> you know, it's like the, there, is, there is no other story there. They're not going to give it away. <laughs>
1: well, you know, I think that that is the way that usually that is the way that it happens. You know, how did you do that amazing scene? It's like I just did it. I didn't think about it, God. If you're thinking about it, then you're probably going to blow it, you know. How about this for a bass line? It's all there. Good. Let's do that.
0: Is it Rolling Bob talking? Dylan
1: is recorded
0: back in Studio Three at Lip Sync Studios on ZenCaster. Engineered
2: by Rosheen King and produced by Robin Guys. Digital Imaging by Finn
0: Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at isitrollingpod. The cry of the peacock. Flies buzz in my head. Ceiling fan broken. There's a heat in my bed. Street band playing nearer my god to thee. We met at the station where the mission bells ring. She said, I know what you're thinking. But there ain't a thing you can do about it. So let us just agree to agree.